Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Let me invite you to, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, open with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're going to wrap up today this series we've been in in the month of January around uh, the Greek word kainos or the word new because we've taken the beginning of the year to just kind of focus on new commitments, uh, new understanding, these, these things. And today we're going to kind of bring that to a conclusion. We're going to deal with the last half of John chapter 17, the last half of this thing scholars call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And we're going to deal with it in the subject of unity in a message entitled A New Commitment to Unity. Now, I want to talk about it from, from the standpoint that unity, well, that's really where we left off last week. Uh, we had been talking about how uh, Christ had, uh, because of what He called us to do, we made a new commitment to make Him known. In other words, to manifest God in the world. And then at the end of that message, he introduces and he brings into perspective for us the subject of unity, the, the need for being united. And I want to show you today as we kind of bring to a conclusion all of that, this, this truth that unity is essential, but now listen, it's not ultimate. Unity is essential, but it's not ultimate. We pursue unity as a means to extend the gospel and to make clear, to manifest the glory of God. In a sentence, unity is both the wow and the how of the gospel. But it's not the ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. The glory of God is ultimate. Unity is evidence that, that we're, we're His and we're on His agenda. And it's the means by which we accomplish His agenda. So it's essential, but it's not ultimate. And I want to unpack that over the next few minutes that we have together. So I'm in John 17. I want to begin in verse 13 and then work our way through the rest of the chapter. So if you're able, can I invite you to stand with me in honor of the Word of God? And hey, if you're joining us from home, we're so glad that you're part of our worship service today. And I hope you'll follow along with us. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. John 17, beginning in verse 13. The Bible says... Jesus is praying now. He says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I've known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Pray with me, would you? Father, even in these moments, would you 
help us to comprehend Christ's desire for our lives. And then I pray as we understand that, that our response to it would bring glory and honor to your name. So teach us and have your will and way in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you for standing. You be seated. If you're joining us from home or if you're in the room, there is an outline available for you. I want to show you three, here's the word, immutable, unchanging, true and always true truths about unity. Three immutable truths about unity that I want you to notice with me. I want you to notice with me, first of all, the necessity of unity, the absolute necessity, the requirement of unity. Now you may say, Chris, you said it was essential, but that it was not ultimate. That's right, because God is ultimate, but it is essential. We must have unity. Why? It's it's how we fulfill the life that God has called us to. You may ask, well, what is that life? Well, characteristically, the Christian life is one of war or one of conflict. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like unity. No, no, we're called to be unified in Christ, but that does not make us unified with all peoples, with the world or what have you. In fact, part of our unity is to place us on God's side as we go to bring others to side with God. Therefore, the Christian life is at constant conflict with the world around us. The very nature of the follower of Jesus is such that it emulates our master. And our master entered into a world that he created that was immediately and often hostile toward him. And he called that world to change, to turn from its pursuits, to repent. Because he said the very kingdom, the rule and reign of God is in your midst. And it's this, this conflict that's there is often presented in the imagery of war. In fact, that's abundant in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples that's, that's there. Uh, Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. He writes to him, he says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. To the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, those weapons we engage in warfare, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This imagery of conflict, of war, I know it doesn't agree with... Uh, with some pictures of Christianity, but it's exactly the picture the Bible presents of us in direct conflict with the world around. Paul said it's essential because of the war we live in that every day that you prepare yourself for battle. Jot down, I won't show it to you, but jot down Ephesians 6 verses 10 through verse 20. Likely as he's writing to the church at Ephesus as he's chained to a Roman soldier he draws this imagery together to tell us that every morning you've got to get up and put on the belt of truth and then the breastplate of righteousness and then strap on sandals that are shod with the gospel of peace and that you take up the shield of faith and the, put on the helmet of salvation and, and, and grab a hold of and wield the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Nothing about that is passive. Every bit of that is about, I'm stepping into battle. Because that's the, li that's the life, the nature of a Christian. The fact is, the mission of God demands that you and I advance the gospel into the world. Which necessarily brings us in conflict with the world. But remember what Jesus said about that conflict. Right after he, he's talking to the disciples and he says to them, who does the world say that I am? They gave these different ideas. And then he said, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. 
And I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock, this confession of Christ as, as, the, as the Messiah, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not offensive weapons. Here's what he said. Hell has erected gates to keep you out and to keep the lost in. And I'm telling you, with the gospel, you're going to plow right through the gates. The gates will not prevail against you. But now listen, they don't open just because you hit a clicker. There's conflict involved. There's a battle for souls. Jesus, with this conflict, Jesus says, there's, there's no question I'm in charge. Hey, listen. When Jesus came to earth, you've got to understand, when he came, he didn't come to take it all in. He didn't come to take notes. He didn't come to take a bow. He didn't come to take it under advisement, but he came to take over. And when he came and pressed in, he said, I am victorious, therefore you are victorious, but we are engaged in a battle. And by the way, Hated by the systems of the world and all those that subscribe to it because of that. That's why the conflict. And he tells us here, we see in the prayer that you and I will be viewed likewise. John 17 verses 14 and 15. He says to his father, he prays, he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world. Even as I'm not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world but rather to keep them from the evil one isn't that interesting Jesus would have a hard time with some ideas of Christianity today don't you think he could flip on some channels where the furniture was painted gold and everybody believed as long as you believed it enough earnestly enough in your little old heart you could be comfortable Jesus would say I don't recognize this kind of faith where's that comfort mentioned even in the scriptures Jesus, in fact, he prays, not Father, remove them from the conflict so that they could be comfortable, but Father, I sent them into it. Guard them, preserve them, keep them from it overpowering them. That's the context he was sent into, and it's the context he sends us into. John 17, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, he prays, I have also sent them into the world. Do you catch the comparison word? In the same way, Father, you dispatched me into the world, I dispatched them. Same goodness in conflict with the world in order to call the world to change, to repent, to be restored, to be redeemed. I'm sending them to do the same thing. As you sent me, so I send them. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their words. You know who that is? In fact, if, you, if you're given to writing in your Bible, you might even put in parentheses out there, that's us. Why? Because it's us. He wasn't just talking to the, to the fellows that were in the room with him there. He wasn't just praying in front of that crowd there. He said, not only for these, Father, but for all those who will believe based on what they teach. That teaching, it's here. This is it. He says he's given some as apostles, and those apostles gave us the doctrines of the church, which is the very foundation of the church with Christ Jesus. As the cornerstone, that which trues it up. You and I are called to this life. Everything he said about the disciples then applies to you and I. And he tells us that as the Father sent him, then he sent us. Plural, by the way, just like we talked about last week. And as the world hates him because he came to seek and to save the lost, it hates us because we have we have centered our lives around seeing that which is lost found, that which is blind to see, that which is locked to be opened so that all could know him. We've come for that purpose. That's why you and I exist. And he prays not for us to be evacuated from that, but that the Father would keep us in the midst of that. 
Hey, conflict or war with the, with the things that are opposed to God is commanded. And our being kept in the unity of the faith is the way in which we accomplish it. In some sense, we step into this conflict not as you and me, but only as we, only as us. We're, a, we're an us now. And he says, if you're going to fulfill this, you've got to be us. Biblical unity is not only a necessity to fulfill the mission, but notice secondly that it's, I want you to notice the supernatural work of unity. Jesus doesn't tell us to figure out how to do this. He asked the Father to do it for us. John 17, verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as, or just as, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. In the same way that you are in me and I am in you, I'm praying that they'll be one and be in us. In union with one another and in union with God. Now, Jesus prays and asks the Father to do this. He says, grant this to be true. Why? Because if we're ever going to pull that off, it's going to be a work of God. There are jokes that float around Baptist churches like you wouldn't believe. Like, if you put 10 Baptists in a room, you'll get 11 opinions on just about everything. Anything that's unanimous in a Baptist church is plumb scary. They're like, what? That's, how did that happen? Well, here's how it happens. It's something supernatural. Why? Because if you bring you to the table and you do what you want to do, we'll come up with a different way to do whatever we do. But when we are united in Him, when we come to Him and we're prosecuting His agenda in everything that we do, everything's united. It, everything has to be. That's why He prayed to the Father. Did you notice? He doesn't lean over to the disciples anywhere and say, now listen, fellas, y'all got to figure this thing out. Y'all going to have to figure out how to get along. Stay focused on the task now, fellas. I'm, I'm counting on you. He doesn't do that. You know why? Because the only way people can get to unity apart from Christ is to lower the standard that unites them so low that it doesn't really mean anything anymore. You know you can do that, right? Sit down and go, now, does the Bible say Jesus is the only way? Ah, that's offensive to some. Let's don't say that. Okay, does it say Jesus at all? It does. It mentions, okay, there's a Bible and it mentions Jesus. Can we all agree on that? Yes. All right, well, we're united in what? That there's a Bible? That it's got his name in it? What does that matter? It doesn't. And even that won't last. There'll come along somebody who'll say, yeah, but that really didn't cover us in North America, so we're going to have to add an appendix to that and call it the Book of Mormon. Why? Because you leave it up to us to try to get to unity. We'll work it all together to where it just doesn't mean anything. God's called us to be united, but not to be united according to our own power, but to be united in Him the way He is united with the Son and the Son with the Father, that we would be united in them in the same way. Jesus tells us as the Father has sent Him to do all that He's done, He sent us. Jesus came to to, to bring truth to bear so that others could come and be with him so that we could all experience this thing that he's called us to, which necessarily results in unity. Unity involved the disciples and those disciples that would come after them, but it also involved God. There is a work that's involved in us. It's not that God comes along and he says, bing, you're united, bing, you're united, bing, you're Cause he left us in these earth suits that are really kind of us-centered kind of things. So he says, y'all got to work at this, but you're going to need me in order to pull it off. And that's why he prayed that they would be together and that they were to be together with him. Biblical unity is not some supernatural thing that he just 
beings and causes to happen like a point in time or a punctiliar action. Rather, it's, a, it's an ongoing progressive work. In other words, as you walk with Jesus for a minute, you find yourself more like Jesus than you were the minute before. As you grow in him, you find yourself moving towards unity. That's what he's called us to do. It's a progressive work. It's the product of sanctification that comes as the word of God's applied in our lives. In fact, he said that, verse 14, Jesus said that he had given the disciples the word of God. And then he prayed for God to sanctify them through the word. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Around here, we, we have a Bible reading plan and we, we talk about scripture a lot and we spend time focusing on that. Do you know that the purpose of that is not to just punch off a list and say, man, we read the Bible? That'd be crazy. That'd be weird. I mean, you could just do that on Audible. And then you'd be like, I've done it. I've done it two or three times. Slept right through it. Slept all the way through Leviticus, Chris. Well, if you're going to get a snoozer, that might be the spot for you. Or here's the reason why we read the Bible. Because we know that God takes his word. And as you read it, you're like, you come to it and you go, yeah, I think my life's pretty much together. I got this. And you get over there into the Beatitudes and you go, I'm not really got the Beatitudes down. And I mean, everybody agrees with that. I'm struggling with the Beatitudes. You think, but I got self-discipline. I've got it nailed down. And then you read, Jesus says, hey, if somebody slaps you on the left side, turn and give them the right one. You're like, I don't know. And then he says, if the government taxes you a shirt, give them your, no, he didn't say the government, but he said, if someone takes your shirt from you, give them your coat also. We'd rather give them a fit. And we go and we say, man, Lord, increase our faith. How are we ever going to get to that? It's going to be God's word and God's work applied to our lives until he shapes us to look like Jesus. Because see, here's the deal. You can't get to Give them the right cheek also and go, well, that was back then. That doesn't mean what it means today. Yes, it does. Here, write this down. This is important. Yes, it does. It applies. I know that seems simplistic, but it cuts down a lot of arguments. What was true then is true today. Why? Because God hasn't changed. These are immutable truths. When I get a hold of that, I go, Lord, I, I'm not sure I can do that. I don't think I have it in me. He said, who said it was you alone? You got me. I'm here to help you. Now, not only does the word sanctify us, Jesus takes it a step further. And he says his life was an example for us to follow after. An example of sanctified living. Look at it. It's, it's incredible. Look at verse 19. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. The Son of God sanctified himself on our behalf? Yeah, that means as near as I can guess, as near as I can tell. When Jesus was at war with with. Uh, what he knew was his. Father, restore the glory which was once mine. I have restored it and I will again. Restore that to me. There was part of him inside that said, hey, it was the part of him that prayed in Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if there is any way, let this cup pass. Sanctified, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you call me to. Let your will be done. You know Jesus could have done it differently. When, when Peter took out his pocket knife and lopped off the ear, Jesus said, put that away. Goofball. Goofball's in the New Christ translation. Put that away. Do you not know, he said, I could ask my father and he'd send 12 legions of angels. Will you think I need your pocket knife? Boy, you better get on that porch. Anyway. Jesus was like, I've set myself apart for this. 
so that you can see what that looks like. That's what I've called you to. That's what he's called us to. So you've got the word of God, you've got the example or the witness of Christ's life, and you've got the work of the Holy Spirit working in concert to sanctify us so that progressively we become more like Jesus. And by the way, as we're progressively growing and becoming more like Him and becoming more united around Him, what He's called us to, we recognize this is all part of God's way of equipping us for the mission, which Jesus sent them for, by the way. And did you notice, or do you know, that the unifying work of the Holy Spirit, this thing that He does in bringing us together, actually, Jesus said, results in you and I experiencing joy. Look at verse 13. I thought this was kind of cool. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus said, this stuff I'm asking you for, Father, it will allow the joy that's in me to be made full, to be filled up to capacity and overflow, to be made full in them as they experience it. That word joy is the Greek word kara. It's, uh, it's related to the word charis, where we get the word uh, grace from. But uh, it's the word kara, it's used 59 times in the New Testament in that form. And it, uh, it speaks of, if you will, a gladness or a rejoicing. It's the same joy that the angels spoke of in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10 when they gave the birth announcement of Jesus. And they said, behold, I bring you good news of great kara, which will be for all peoples. It's the same joy that was experienced by the Samaritans in Samaria after Philip preached and ministered there. Acts 8 verses 7 and 8. For in this case, for in the case of the many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much kara rejoicing in that city. Jesus said, that's the joy of mine that will be made full as they embrace this and will be in themselves. It's not only a source of joy, it's also the very glory of God in us. He provides the very glory of God in us. Look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. That word glory, the Greek word doxa, where we get the word doxology from. It, uh, it speaks here as you look at it, as you read it there. It says it, 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 it results in a unity for us. And that unity uh, of us results in glory for God like in a cycle. Like it gives us, it brings us to unity and our unity brings God glory, which brings us to unity, which brings us to glory. And he said, that's theirs. Now, glory here is not like all of the angels in heaven will bow down and worship us. That would be odd because there's only one worthy of worship. It's not that kind of glory. It speaks of the power, the amazement, the power of God residing in us so that through us, God's power would be manifest. That's what he means by that. I've given them your power, your glory, our glory, so that they could be perfected in it. It's a, isn't that what Jesus promised the disciples he was going to do? Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, wait here until the Spirit comes upon you and you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said, I, Father, this glory that's mine, I've given it to them. This joy, I prayed, you'll take this joy of mine and it'll be made full in them. They may be one even as we are one. And this would perfect them. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected, brought to completion in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. 
Chris, are you saying that God wants us to experience unity? Has empowered us to experience unity? Jesus prayed for us to be in unity? If that's true, why is there not unity? Because we're involved. See, you give us half a chance, we'll mess up anything. We'll turn around and set a what if or an obstacle between us and where God wants to take us. And then we won't get there and we'll blame it on God like God somehow came up short. God never comes up short. But he also doesn't override us. He says, you want to put up an obstacle? Let's see how that works for you. Let me give you a... We could probably list a thousand if we wanted to, but let me give you three obstacles to unity that just in a, in a broad, in broad strokes at a very high level prevent this thing that Jesus prayed for from being reality in our lives. Three obstacles. The first one, me rather than we. When we approach life from a me rather than we perspective, we get in the way of unity. We start thinking it's all about it. Now, can I just say to you, that's just built down deep inside us. If you're watching the news and you hear, and Washington has passed this new thing, you go, what does that mean to? You probably don't sit there and go, I wonder how this is going to affect fiscally the nation. Probably going, what's this going to do to my taxes? What's this going to do to my freedom? What's this going to do to my? And you think about it from your perspective. Why? Because it's kind of hardwired in there to think about me. But the me over we is an obstacle to the unity that God's called us to experience and to express in our lives. James said it's actually the source of all conflict. James 4 and verse 1, he says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? The desires within you that as you yield to them, as you succumb to them, it just creates conflict all around and all within. Me over we. It's why Paul spoke in relation to relationships, speaking about relationships, he said you've got to think differently than that. Ephesians 5 verse 21, he says be subject, be yielded to, surrender to, be subject to one another. In the fear of Christ, because of who Christ is and reverence to him, set me aside for we. Set, uh, set, set, set personal preference aside for, for, uh, for purpose and fulfillment. Peter goes further, 1 Peter 4 verses 8 to 10. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Chris, how am I going to get over this hurt in my heart? Love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, but I, I really want to get, I want to get what's justly due me. Uh, now, hold on a minute, Sparky. Are you serious? You want what justly is due you? Because you know that's getting hairy for you, right? You might win that battle, but it's not going to help you in the war. You're going to get done. You don't get grace calling for justice. Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. He says, therefore, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Think of others first. And as each one has received a special gift, don't brag about it, but use it, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, the made real, the tangible grace of God. Here's what he said, you ought to spend your life being we-focused, not me-focused. But our obstacle is me over we. Secondly, we have an obstacle of us rather than them. It's possible and even likely that some can make unity the goal, and it's not. Our togetherness is not the goal. Our togetherness is the sign of achieving the goal and the means by which we achieve the goal. Let me give it to you in a confusing sentence. The objective of unity is not the comfort or the convenience of those united, but the reconciling of others to God and the manifesting of God in the world. 
The objective of unity, its purpose, its reason, is not so that we would be more comfortable or that we would experience greater convenience of those of us who are united, but rather that we would be more effective at reconciling, drawing in others and manifesting God in the world. When I was in uh, elementary school back in the 1900s, we would start outdoor activities by, y'all probably remember, I don't know if you're allowed to touch each other anymore, but back in the day you'd hold hands in a circle and you'd back up, try not to trip over anything, you'd back up until your arms were stretched. If you were a boy and I'm a boy, you'd back up really hard and you'd try to break the circle and the teacher would say, and then you'd reach over and you'd grab the hand again and you hold on to it. The problem with that is we all ended up in a circle holding hands looking at each other. Now listen, that's world thinking. That's us over them. In God's economy, His model is, yes, you've got to be united. Yes, you've got to hold hands. But you've got to hold hands facing outward. It's us. And we want you to be us. Not you're them, like you're the enemy. You're not the enemy. We were you. And God made us us. And God wants you to be us with us. Come. Let's go get them. Move the whole circle until we bring them in. Us over them. But we prefer, we prefer us. Why? Well, it's comfortable. You know, when you start engaging in the thems, first of all, you make them less than you because you call them them. Those people, them folk, people like that. Hey, you know what? We were like that. No, not us. They're broken. Who do you think you are? I've said before, <laughs> you're, we're all broken. That's how you can't get to a them, because we're them. We're all broken. You mean at Inglewood where everybody's perfect? We're perfectly broken. It's the greatest church I've ever been a part of. And I'm here to tell you, y'all are a bunch of misfit toys. And I'm the mayor. We're all messed up. And our job's to bring other messed up misfits into the circle. So there's a lot of us's with our eyes focused on the thems. And our hearts pursuing after the thems until the thems become us's. And then all of us's go after some more thems until we bring them in. Why? Because that's what he created us for. Yes, unity. Yes, holding hands. Yes, a circle, but a circle facing outward. The obstacle to that, when we think of us rather than them. Thirdly. When we think of life through the lens of ours rather than his. Ours rather than his? Yeah. Hey, listen. Christ pursued our good over his own. You may say, nah, he needed me. He wanted me. I'm making heaven a better place when I get there. You're insane. First of all, theologically speaking, accurately speaking, Jesus doesn't need anything. If he needed something, he would be less than. If you met the needs, you would be God. The fact of the matter is he needs nothing. Jesus said this on his way into town in the last week of his life. He said, if you fail to worship, I can make them rocks sing on key. He says, you think that? God said, if I was hungry, excuse me, if I was hungry, do you think I'd tell you? I'm the king of sandwiches. I make everything on my own. I don't need you. He's self-sufficient. He has to be self-sufficient. Self-sustaining. He has to be that way. That means his agenda must be absolutely perfect. But we like to assert our agenda above his. I know God wants this. But... I think this is a better way. I think we should do this. That's weird. It's also unchristlike, or hey, 
Let me give you another word for that. Anti-Christ-like. Because Jesus was focused on, he was focused on God's agenda, not what would well up inside of us as humanity. Peter said it this way, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just has no needs for the unjust, very needy misfit toys. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You say, well, it probably wasn't that hard for Jesus. He could see long range. In the garden, so weighty on his soul. Father, if there's any other way than this. I mean, any other way. Any other way than this. Let this pass. Nevertheless, not my agenda, but yours. When we place ours ahead of his, we put an obstacle to unity. I've had folks that have said in other places, and it's true of us. They would say, man, y'all give a lot of money to missions. Can I tell you something? We invest a lot of money to the mission. Why would we do such things? I mean, couldn't we, couldn't we have a, couldn't we get five inches of foam so we could endure your long preaching in the chair? I mean, couldn't we get five inches of foam in there? <laughs> no. But, but Chris, if we, man, we could go ahead and finish the miracle field up in a heartbeat. I mean, we could just take the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we send to missions, the launching of people out there, the empowering, the going, the caring. We, if we just reinvested that here, man, we could finish that. Just think of the hundreds of people we could help over there or the tens of thousands that hear the gospel because of what we invest. Hey, if it was our agenda, that's what we do. But it's his agenda. In fact, here's what I think would happen. I think the moment you turn insular and you go, I don't want to do that. God says, oh, really? And he takes that spigot and he just starts turning it to the right. And you're like, man, what, what happened to all the resources? I'm going to use them somewhere where somebody's going to use them. Because that's how God operates. Well, I, I want us to be unified. Well, you got to, you got to say, Lord, untap the tap. Turn it loose. If unity's not the goal, but it's rather it's the means to the goal and the sign of the accomplished goal, then what exactly, Chris, is the goal? Number three, biblical unity manifests God's glory. Biblical unity, here's the truth. Biblical unity, when we find biblical unity, it points to and it precedes God's glory. John 17, verse 21. Jesus said that they may all be one, even as, same as, Father, just like us, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also, they also may be in us to this end, so that the world may believe that you, Father, sent me into the world. Now, in the sending of Jesus, we find the power of God to save. We find the activity or the action of God in saving. And we find the heart of God in desiring to save. His goodness is running after. It's running after me. We see that in sending Jesus. And Jesus says, my prayer is that in the same way, Father, you're in me and I am in you, they'll also be in us. This unity, one with another, and then one of oneness with God, somehow or another, causes the world to believe that God sent His Son for them. And 
It allows us to experience the very glory of God. Verse 23, I and them and you and me that they may be perfected, brought to completion, perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you, and love them even as you have loved me. That word know is, uh, you know, there's several words for know in the Greek language. This is the word ginosko. It speaks of an experiential knowledge. It's not just intellectual knowledge or facts. The demons know that the Father sent the Son, but they don't know what it is to have experienced the sent Son as Savior. So here's what he said, that they may know experientially that you sent me to them. They may be reconciled. Jesus said, that's why he prayed for us to be together and for us to be together around him so that as he is in the Father and the Father in him and he in us, that we would be in them in union, and God would receive glory. Well, how do you get there? I think if, you do, if we're to get there, we've got to make three, at least three commitments, but three that we could focus on that would get us. And they probably are in the form the opposite of the obstacles. So instead of me over we, we have to be we rather than me. We rather than me, a commitment to we rather than me, we rather than me. By the way, we make that kind of a cornerstone of who we are. If you're, um, if, if you're new around here, you don't see it. When you go back out into the foyer and you look to your right over on the wall that looks like wood, which it is probably wood. Uh, anyway, it's over there and it's got, it's got these, these uh, picture of habits, habits at Englewood. And we we kind of say, if you're going to experience the fullness of God, you've got to, these have to be habits in your life. You've got to rest in Christ. You've got to be a blessing to those in your household, gathering together, going beyond. If these habits are part of your life, then you're, you're experiencing, you're on your way to being a transformed home. That third one is a we statement. Gathering together. When we gather together, we're we. When we're not gathered together, uh, this is kind of me. So listen to me. This camera, whichever one's controlling that. I know there are times when we're not feeling well, when we've got an injury, or work's forced us to travel out of town. And in those cases, this is good. Man, it's good. It keeps us connected. But this isn't we. It's a substitute for we. It's a stand-in for we. But it's not we. We is we. We is us. So, well, Chris, it's, man, it's cold outside this morning. We can just worship in our jammies on the sofa. Hey, good for me, not good for we. We have to be here together. We need each other. I need you so we exist. We must be together. Yeah, but Chris, if I come, man, I could, I could catch a cold or catch the flu or catch COVID or I could, uh, I could get run over by a herd of pterodactyls storming down Winstead Avenue. I mean, there could be terrible things that could happen. And you could also get the blessing of we and the rest of we could get the blessing of we, which we can't get if it's focused on me. If we're to experience unity, we've got to place we over me. Secondly, we'd have to place them over us. Outward focus on man, focus it on the world. It's, it's about them. That's how do we connect to them? I don't think Jesus, in fact, I know he won a farmer, but you know, he told farmer stories. Why did he tell farmer stories? He's talking to farmers. Why didn't he tell home building stories? I mean, he was a carpenter because he's talking to farmers. If you talk to farmers, you talk farming. You talking to home builders or tent makers, you talk that. You talking to furniture builders, carpenters, you talk that. He was other folks. If we're going to experience unity, we have to be focused on them rather than us. Holding hands but facing outward. And third. His rather than ours. His agenda 
rather than ours. God has a settled agenda. And if we're ever to experience it, we've got to pray daily, God, make me like you, not conform you to me. And that's work. That's effort. That's a yieldedness. And I don't know what it looks like for you. You may not even, you may never even thought about it. But for me, often it starts in my life like this. God, there's, there's way too much me in the day. Help me today think about we over me. Help me to be, today to be focused on them rather than us. Tune my heart, Lord, to be focused on your agenda and not my own. That I might reflect Christ and that unity can be a reality for me. What about you? What does yours look like? Because see, if you try to do it in your own power, you'll, you'll flop, you'll fail. You can't do it in your power. And you won't, he won't do it alone. But you and him can get there. You say, Chris, that's, that's just a bridge too far. There's no way I can get to that place in my life. Well, just let me ask you, friend, how far is too far? Is it this far? Maybe it's this far. Is that bridge too far, this far? Like when Christ stretched out his hands on a cross to settle your debt so that you could be reconciled to him. Is it that far? Because I'm here to tell you that's far enough to bring us into alignment with him and with one another. And if you're sitting here today saying, man, I'd like to, I'd love for that to be true in my life, Chris. I just don't know how this is how. How do you get a hold of this? It's a nine-year-old boy. Maybe I don't know much more than I did then, but as a nine-year-old boy, I grasped this from what a teacher told me. When we do bad things, we separate ourselves from God. But if we ask God to forgive us, and we trust that He actually does, and we commit to follow after Him, we will be saved. I prayed a prayer as a nine-year-old boy like that. In fact, maybe you're sitting here today going, I'd love that, Chris. That's what you need to know. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com slash next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.